So we are uh, continuing on the series that we started last Sunday, and we started uh, as we're going to be studying through the entire book of Romans this summer. And so throughout the summer, and we know, again, we hope that you'll be in church as, as much as you can be, but we also know that there are vacations and different times that pull you away. And so through the summer, I said we're going to be going chapter by chapter through the book of Romans. So uh, I encourage you to follow along with us, to read ahead, to if, especially if you miss a Sunday, you can continue to read and study on your own. And again, you can follow up on the messages that are, are available online and, and several different places if you miss one. Um, but we are going to be going, like I said, chapter by chapter through Romans. Um, and we don't have time to go verse by verse, and, and which, again, I'd love to do that. But again, we, we don't have time to do that. But this is going to take us all the way to the end of summer. Okay? And so, uh, so we are going to be going, like I said, chapter by chapter. And with that said, as last week, we started in Romans chapter 1, and just as we saw, um, you know, Paul wrote this letter um, to the community and the church in Rome. Now, Rome was a very uh, interesting culture. They, they had um, a mix of, of Jews and of Greeks, and of, I mean, if you can think about it or imagine it, it was present in the community in Rome. Okay, and Paul writes into this community and into this church, and, and just as we saw last week, he's very... Uh, blunt and forefront in the things that he calls them out on. They, and yet, at the same time, as we look at their culture in Rome, is there's some starking parallels between Rome and the way our culture is today. Okay, and with that said, as, as, as I said last week, I kind of gave you a warning last week, we, we did a belly flop into the deep end of the pool last week as Paul just goes straight at the heart of what he is facing and what they're facing there and what we face even in our lives today. And so with that said, we're going to continue our study through that. And we saw how Paul in chapter 1 give us, gives us this big picture concept of what we worship will affect our entire life. Okay, what we worship will affect our entire life. And as we looked at this concept last week, we saw that he presents two choices. He says you can, you can worship God or you can worship anything else. Right? Anything other than God, he calls worshiping an idol. Okay? And again, we saw that this was not a new concept that Paul is teaching us. It's a concept we see all throughout Scripture. Okay? And yet he says there are these two options of what you can worship with your life. You can either worship God or you can worship an idol, anything other than God. Okay? And, and again, he presents in the middle, at the, towards the end of chapter 1, he presents a list of sins right, that is easy to... to to realize and focus on in our lives of, of where your life will drift into if you worship something other than God. Okay, if you don't worship God, then this will come into your life. And he gives us this list of sins. Now, as we read this list of sins, okay, the easy thing for us to do when we read that list is to focus on everyone else. Right? And say, oh yeah, I know, I know that person that does that, or I I I, I know, you know, yes, this you know, this person really should read this list, right? And again, it's easy for us to have those kind of, those other people pulling up in our mind and our hearts as we read, um, you know, this, this blunt message that Paul gives us. And now we move into chapter two. And Paul continues down this same road of teaching. And remember, in the original letter, there was not chapter breaks, right? He just goes right into the next one. And, and after he presents this list of sins at the end of chapter one, Okay, then um, he goes right into chapter 2, and with the very first verse, he moves the spotlight where we, it's easy for us to focus on everybody else, and now he shines the light right on us. Okay, as he tells us in Romans 2, verse 1, 
when you think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked you should be, and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. I know, I, I'm sure that verse probably makes you feel the same way it makes me feel. Oh, no. <laughs> right? I mean, we're sitting back, we're like, great, thanks, Paul. I, I, I come to church to be encouraged, and now I hear this, this, start out this verse, and all I feel is crushed. Right? As Paul says, hey, by the way, you're a sinner too. And, and again, he puts the spotlights on us. And with this first verse, he, he introduces the next step of this case that he's building and these concepts he's teaching us in our lives of what it really means to follow Jesus and to worship God and only God. And he makes the point, as we saw last week, he says what you worship will affect your entire life. The, the theme of chapter 2 and for this week is integrity says that's the next step in the journey. If you, you focus and worship on the right things, then the next thing is integrity. And, and, and I want to start our study today with, with the definition that, that Paul gives of integrity in chapter 2. The, the overarching definition of integrity that he teaches us is this, is that integrity is when what we claim to worship matches the condition of our heart. What we claim to worship matches the condition of our heart. If that is true, then you are a person of integrity. Now, I understand that integrity is one of these words that, that we can define in lots of different ways. And if you, if you ask somebody to define integrity, you're going to get lots of different definitions. They, in fact, and I think you might even see this definition that I feel Paul presents us and be like, wait a minute, isn't integrity about our actions? And it is, but... But he takes a step behind our actions and says, where does our actions start? Your actions start with your heart. Right? And the condition of your heart is far more important than your actions. Because the actions, your actions, your outward actions are only evidence of the condition of your heart, of what's really happening on the inside. Again, this, once again, is not a new concept that Paul is making up. This is one that we see all through Scripture. In fact, one that he's reiterating what Jesus even taught over and over through his teachings. I, I want to highlight one of those times in Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3 and verse 28. Again, this is Jesus speaking here. When he says, The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. Skipping to verse 20, 28, where it says, Outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, if you read this entire chapter, I mean, here, again, Jesus is, is very upfront and blunt to these Pharisees. In fact, he calls them a hypocrite about eight times in this chapter. And notice he says, he's like, yes, they know the truth but they don't live it out. And notice Jesus even makes this connection about the fact of that knowing something, right, is, is different than doing it. And yet doing it is not even about your actions. It's actually about the condition of your heart. 
Again, it isn't about what you look like outwardly, but whether what you look like matches your heart. Your action starts in your heart. Now, in this, this chapter, in Romans chapter 2, it is Paul kind of gives us four different concepts that it presents because he knows that his readers are going to feel the same way that we feel after reading verse 1. Right, you see this, and as he turns the spotlight on us and says, hey, you know what, um, I, I understand that that makes you uncomfortable. And Paul, in expecting the pushback of like, I don't like where this is headed, he, he goes back through the chapter and he makes four points about to reiterate his, his point he makes in verse 1. Okay, now as we see in this, that's the structure of this chapter, is that we see these four sections, and each one presents a concept that builds the case for true integrity. And then each section ends with a summary verse. Okay, and the summary verse is kind of a drop-the-mic type of situation. Okay, where he, he gives us, presents this concept, and then he just gives us this verse, and then he moves on to the next concept. So what we're going to do today, we're going to look at these four sections okay, and see what are these concepts that Paul presents okay, as he, um, again, kind of brings us along, right, and kind of says, okay, I know that you feel pushed down now, but give me a moment, right, and I'll give you some hope, okay? So we're going we're gonna to walk through that today, okay? So I invite you to open up, if you have your Bible with you, to open up with me to Romans uh, chapter 2. If you don't have your own Bible, don't have it with you, there are Bibles provided for you in the seat pockets you're welcome to use. And you'll notice on the outline uh, is the page numbers of where you can find these passages in those Bibles, okay? So as we're going to uh, first, in this first section, start Romans uh, chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 1, okay, where it says, uh, and uh, sorry, this first section is verses 1 through 4, okay, starting at verse 1. It says, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And now here is this first section, these first four verses. Okay, and the concept that Paul presents to us here. Okay, is the fact that we are all sinners, but God loves us anyway. Okay, we're all sinners, but God loves us anyway. Again, he's, he says, like, right, it's, it's easy to focus on the sin of everybody else. Right? But now as we turn it towards ourselves and say, he's like, hey, you're no better than them. Okay, we're all sinners, and yet God still loves us anyway. Again, if you look back to the list that he presents at the end of chapter 1, it's verses 29 through 32. And again, if you, if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and read that list. Even if you heard last week, I encourage you to go back and read that list. Okay, because I want you to look at that list and realize that there's not a single one of us in this room that cannot circle something on that list that we are guilty of. And again, it's easy to focus on somebody else's sin and be like, oh man, right? But, but again, Paul's making the point. He's like, you are guilty of something on that list too. Right? It means we are all sinners, right? We are all in the same boat. 
And yet, God loves us anyways. Which is exactly what he tells us in verse 4. And this is the, this is the summary verse of this section in verse 4. As he presents us with these, with these rhetorical questions. Right? And he says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see this kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Okay, as we see, again, this summary verse of the fact that we're all sinners, yet God loves us anyway. Okay, it answers the question that many of us have, right? And that is, how do I interact with somebody who is a sinner, right? Because the truth is, we look at that list, and there are some of those sins on that list that really bother us. And there are also other sins on that list that we tend to ignore. Now, what's the correlation between which ones we can circle or not? I, I'll leave that up to you. Okay, but when you look at that list, right, there are, there are different ones that make us uncomfortable. Okay, and yet, he's, he's telling us, right, how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with us. Again, he says, to answer this question, how do I interact with somebody who is deep in sin or has sin in their life? Well, the answer is you treat them the same way God has treated you. Because, by the way, you're on that list too. Right? And so we treat them the same way God treats us. Right? And just as Jesus tells us, don't follow the example of these hypocritical teachers, he's saying, do follow the example of God. Follow the example of how God treated you, because we're all sinners. But yet, he has loved you anyways. Right? He's saying, again, look at how God treats you. He, he's wonderfully kind. He's tolerant. He's patient with you. And that's how you should treat everybody else. And yet, he, he comes into this, and we, he shows us, again, the heart of God in, in treating us and loving us anyway, even though we're sinners. And again, what is the heart of God? The heart of God is he wants to turn us from our sin. Right? The whole point of the gospel is that we get transformed by the power of God and his grace and his mercy so that we are no longer sinners. Right, and that is what God wants for us, and that's what he wants for everybody who's a sinner, which is everybody, to his point. Right, so as we realize that, again, I, I encourage you to underline the phrase in this verse, right, intended to turn you from your sin. Intended to turn you from your sin, because that tells us a lot about the heart of God. Okay, the, it is the heart behind God giving us grace and mercy is to turn us away from our sin. Now, God is still very clear that sin is indeed sin. Okay, and that there are consequences to that sin. Again, he isn't tolerant of sin itself. He is tolerant of our wandering hearts. Again, this word tolerant is one that we can use very wrongly many times. Right, in thinking that, oh, if God's tolerant, then then he's, he's, he's letting me sin and saying that that's okay. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not tolerant of sin. He is tolerant of our wandering hearts. And when we realize that, right, and we know that because God stepped up, he's not tolerant of sin because he sent Jesus to pay the price for that sin. Right, the wages of sin is death. Right? That does not change. Right? And yet God stands up, the only one who's not a sinner on that list, 
right? God says, says, I will pay that price for you. Because so, sin is still sin. He's not tolerant of sin. He is tolerant of our wandering hearts. And he wants to turn us away from that sin. And therefore, as we follow that example, it's also the way that we can help someone else turn from their sin. Right? Is to treat them the way God treats us. And to point them to Jesus, who paid the price for their sin too. Because the truth is, we can't change anybody's heart. I can't save anybody, and neither can you. Only Jesus can save them. Only Jesus can change their heart. Right? And changing their heart is what will turn them from their sin, just like it turns us from our sin. As we continue in our spiritual journey, and we be transformed by God's Spirit every day to be more like Him tomorrow than I am today. Right? Which means I am, hopefully, as the more I am like Christ, the less of a sinner I am tomorrow than I am today. Right? And that's what the spiritual journey is all about. So he makes this point that we're all sinners, and yet God loves us anyways. And then he moves on to the next section, right? In Romans 2, verses 5 through 11, where he makes the next point. Okay, picking up at verse 5, when he says, But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Okay, so what point is he making in this section of, in verses 5 through 11? He, he starts off with, we're all sinners, but God loves us anyway. And then he presents in this section the concept that everyone will be judged by God. Everyone will be judged. Everyone, again, you are not going to snake your way past this test. Okay, we will all be judged by God. Yeah, in fact, in verse 6, he makes this, this very bold statement. Okay, when he says, he will judge everyone according to what they have done. Okay, that is a very bold statement. And as he makes that in verse 6, then in verse 7 and 8, he unpacks what that means. Okay, yes, everybody will be judged according to what they have done. And then, though he shows that in verse 7, he says you can have eternal life if based on what, um, what has been done for, by God for you, right, if you continue to live for him and worship him, right, which means when you go to that test, God doesn't see what you have done. He's seen what Jesus has done. Or, in verse 8, what you have done for yourself. And again, he's, he's giving us the answer to the test that we're all going to face right here. He's like, by the way, you will not pass this test on your own. There's only one way to pass this test, and that is with the blood of Jesus. Again, he's referring us back to the point of chapter 1, right? What you worship really matters. And then he gives us the summary verse, again in verse 11, where he tells us, for God does not show favoritism. Right? There is no way for you to get around this test. Because we've all sinned. 
right? And yet God loves us anyway. So as we see again this, this concept here that he's presenting, that we are all going to face judgment. And yet here we see as well as this bigger concept that runs through the entire letter is this idea, this, this compare and contrast of Jew and Gentile. Again, this is something that was very prevalent in the Roman culture. Okay? And yet um, we understand that your family history means nothing in regards to your salvation. And that's what he's telling them. He's like, hey, yeah, yes, Jews were first, but also Gentiles, right? We're all in the same boat now, right, after Jesus. Hey, and then he moves on to the next section in Romans 2, verses 12 through 16. As he continues to build this case, right, of why integrity really matters. Okay, picking up at verse 12. He says, when the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in the hearts for, of, for their own conscience and thoughts, either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Now, as we see this, again, Paul's continuing to, to reiterate his point of how much Integrity matters. And here he's saying, okay, we're all sinners, we're, but God loves us anyways. Okay, we're all going to face judgment. And then, then he comes into this, this next concept, and that is that God's law is written on our hearts, not just in Scripture. Okay, now again, God's law is written. right? And he says that. He's like, the, the, the Jewish people have the written law. They have, they have the Scriptures, right? They're, well, we're get handed down to them. They have the written law. And yet, the written law is not as important as the life they live. In fact, and then he says, but for Gentiles who don't even have the written law, even for those that have not even heard it, right, they still live according to it because it is written on our hearts. Right? It's written down in a lot of places, but yet God is our creator, has hardwired this this. This part within every one of us that knows that there's a difference between right and wrong. Okay, it is written on our hearts. It is hardwired by God when he created us. Okay, remember in, in chapter 1, he presents this natural theology concept. Right, that there's no excuse for not knowing that there's a God, that there's a higher power. Okay, here he goes um, a, a step further, right, as he references God's moral standard that comes because God is our creator that he has the right to set the moral standard. Again, we have a sense of right and wrong that is pre-wired into us. Yet even if someone is an atheist and denies the existence of God completely, they still have a default sense of right and wrong. Right now, granted, their, their line of where you cross from right and wrong is going to be very different than somebody who does acknowledge God, but there is still a line. Right, because God has put it there. Again, even if they deny the existence of God completely, it does not change the fact that God actually does exist. Right, and that he did create them, and that he has written this on their hearts. There is a difference between right and wrong. 
Right? And, and Paul is telling us, he's like, hey, God has put this in you, and he does that on purpose. Right? And as he says then in the summary verse in verse 16, which is when he says, and this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. And he says, you will be judged. Okay, we know that. He's already established that. But then he says, again, how do you pass Pass the test. How you pass the judge? Through Christ Jesus. All right, that's the only way, right, that you're ever going to pass it. Right, and then there's this, this last phrase, right, as he judges everyone's secret life. Again, I encourage you to circle that word, secret life. And I don't know about you, but for me, that kind of sends chills down my back. Oh, you mean God knows about? Yep. He does know my attitude towards that person that cut me off in traffic last week. He does know what I muttered under my breath as that person walked away. Right? He does know. He will judge my secret life. Right? And with that sobering thought, kind of, again, read it, it's all the way back to the first concept, right? That, yep, I belong in that list just like everybody else. I'm a sinner. Right? And the truth is that sin thrives in secrecy. Sin thrives in secrecy. In fact, that's one of the lies of the, of the enemy that, that whispers into our head. You're like, it's not that big a deal. Don't, you know, just, just nobody knows. Keep it a secret. Right? Why does the enemy whisper out in our head? Because sin thrives in secrecy. As soon as it's public, it, it, it doesn't have the power over us anymore. Uh, I heard a pastor um, teaching uh, about, about pornography. And again, and pornography is at epidemic levels in our culture, in our world. And, and, and a lot of times, that sin of lust of pornography is a secret sin. And I remember him saying, he's like, one of the first things he does if he's counseling guys to get over that and to get out of that life of sin, he says, the first thing you need to do is tell your wife. Now, I can't imagine how hard of a conversation that would be, right? But as soon as you tell your wife, it's not secret anymore, right? And, and all of a sudden, you have this built-in accountability, that, which, by the way, is why God made you, you know, husband and wife in the first place, right? It's you are one flesh. You're supposed to hold each other accountable, right? And when it's a secret sin, I feel like I can do it, but yet once she knows, I like, it's a whole different ballgame. Right, because sin thrives in secrecy. And that's just one example. Right, but sin thrives in secrecy. In fact, that's why Scripture tells us that to confess our sins to one another so that you can be healed is exactly what it says. Right, yes, we confess them to God so that Jesus can pay the price of our sin right, to connect back to God, but he also tells us to truly be healed, to truly repent, to confess it to one another because sin thrives in secrecy. Right, and as soon as I tell somebody else, right, even a trusted person, right, then, then I can be healed. I mean, that's exactly what the scripture says. Because sin thrives in secrecy. Right, then he, he's, he's building this case. He, he gets now finally to this last section, okay, in chapter 2. And this is the longest section. This is verses 17 through 29, okay, where, where he says, You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. 
You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, the Gentiles blasphemy the name of God because of you. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it's a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. So as we see again, this, this last section, this kind of, this last Nail in the coffin is, as, as Paul is, is, is building us up to this point of how important integrity is. Right and here, obviously, he is speaking to a very um, you know, specific group of people as they say, hey, you know what? I'm good because I'm the I'm Jewish descent. Like, it's good. You know, God, we're God's chosen people. I've, we have God's law. I'm good. And, and yet, Paul is saying, he's like, no, the concept is your heart condition is much more important than your pedigree. Your heart condition is much more important than your pedigree. And again, the bigger concept of that is he is telling them and telling us that your background doesn't determine your future. That your background does not determine your future. Whether you were raised in a Christian home or not. Whether you have a dark past or not. Whether you have walked away many times or not whether you've been a perfect Christian your entire life or not, no matter your age, your race, your gender, or whatever, it doesn't matter to God what he wants for your future. Right? No matter your race, gender, whatever, it does not matter to God what he wants for your future. It does not change what God wants for your future. What does matter is the condition of your heart. Because the condition of your heart will determine your future. Right? And are you truly following through? Are you living up to everything that God has written on your heart? To everything that you've been taught? To, to everything that Jesus has done for you? Are you worshiping God and only God? Right? And, and he tells us this again in the summary verse, verse 29, the the last verse of the chapter, when he says, no, a true Jew is the one whose heart is right with God. And the true circumstance is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather it's, it's a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not for people. Again, who can change hearts? Not me, not you. The Spirit can change hearts. 
right? And only the Spirit can change hearts. Again, how are we shown grace and mercy from God? Only through the blood of Jesus. Right? And when we receive Christ as our Savior, we confess our sins, right? We believe in our heart, confess with our mouth, and we become saved. Then that starts us on a new journey, a journey of transformation towards Jesus Christ to be more like him tomorrow than I am today. Right? And that is what changes our heart. And yet, then he presents us here right, with a test for the true condition of your heart. Right? Look at this, this last sentence. He says, and a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. Right? And that's a test, right? A test for me in my, in my own life, right? Uh, is my heart changed? Well, who am I really seeking praise from? Am I living life to please God or am I living life to please other people? Because those are very different things. Sometimes they're the same. Oftentimes they're different. Who am I seeking praise from? Who, who do I want to smile down on my decision? Do I want God to? Or do I just want to make other people happy? And that's the first test he gives us of is my heart really being changed? Do I care more about what God thinks than I do about what everybody else thinks? Who are you seeking praise from? And then as Paul makes this case again and, and, and closes his case on this overall concept of how important integrity is, and then he ends again with this, right, of saying, again, how can my heart be changed? It's by the Spirit of God. And so how can I help other people turn from their sin? Right? Just like I'm turning from my sin. And which leads us then to the, the kind of concluding thought that we have for us. Again, how do I live this out every day? As he's talking about how do I truly be a person of integrity? How do I interact with other people that are sinners? Right? Will I interact the same way that God's interacted with me? I follow the example of God to please him. Right? Which leads us then to the concluding thought, and that is this. That living a life of integrity is the best way to point others to Jesus. Okay, living a life of integrity is the best way to point others to Jesus. Remember, I can't change anybody's heart, neither can you. Right? And yet, if we live a life of integrity, if I, if I take my, my faith journey seriously, right? and, and again, my, my heart matches what I say I worship, and, and therefore, so will my actions, right? then that is what will point others to Jesus. Again, this is not a new concept and not one that, that, is, that is just from Paul. We see in, in Peter, 1 Peter, um, Peter makes the same point in this verse in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16, when he says, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And we've read that somewhere before, haven't we? You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. You're to worship Christ, the Lord of your life, right? What you worship affects everything, right? And if you worship God, right, then, then God will change you. He'll save you and he'll change you and continue to transform you. And then that means that your life will look different than everything else around you. As he says, if then someone who asks about your hope, right, that is the result of a life of integrity. Because if you're living a life of integrity, then people will notice there's something different about you. 
If you're living to please God and not other people, they'll notice that there's something different about you. Right? And then they might ask you. Right? Which kind of raises the question, well, what if nobody's asking me? Well, that's, that's probably another test of saying, am I really living a life of integrity? Because right? if I say I'm worshiping Christ, but nobody's asking what's different, then maybe they don't see anything different. Right? So, again, that's another test, right? Am I truly living a life of integrity? And, again, if they do ask, and he says when they ask, right, he says to explain it in a gentle and respectful way, which, by the way, is the way God treats us, in a gentle and respectful way. Again, I will treat every sinner the same way God treats me. I will follow his example. Right, and as I realize that, and, and think about this concept, this concept that Paul is, is calling us to as followers of Jesus to live a life of integrity. As Peter reiterates that, as Jesus reiterates that, as we see this concept all throughout Scripture, right, it reminds me of this famous quote by Francis Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Because your life will speak a whole lot louder than your mouth. Right? And people will receive it a whole lot differently when they ask you than if you go chasing them. Preach the gospel all the time. Again, by my life of integrity. So that when people, I can treat them in a gentle and respectful way. The same way God has treated me. Which brings me to the end of my final thought this morning, and that is this. The world is watching Everyone who claims to follow Jesus and notices right away if they have integrity. What is the current condition of your heart? Because the condition of your heart will dictate your actions. Does the condition of your heart match what you claim to worship? Are you truly a person of integrity? As a follower of Jesus, that's our goal, is to please God and not people. Again, I don't know the condition of your heart, but I think you probably do. And my challenge to you this morning is to say, um, whatever the condition of your heart is, it can be changed right now by Jesus. Right? If you've never received Christ as your Savior, you can, you can pray and, and confess right? and invite him in your life right now, and your heart can be changed. Right? Even if you have accepted Christ, and you just need to take that next step in your journey and be more of a person of integrity, right? is lay that at the feet of Jesus as we continue to be transformed. God, this morning, we thank you that you love us, even though we're sinners. God, even though we fall short, God, and we mess up, God, you love us anyways, and we thank you for that. And God, we thank you that when you see us, Lord, as a follower of Jesus, as, as a believer, as a Christian, God, when you see us and when we face judgment, Lord, you don't see us, you see Jesus. And God, that you love us so much, God, that you paid the price for our sins through Jesus. And God, I pray that as we go this week, Lord, that we would... Lord, follow your example. God, that we would live a life of integrity. God, and show your love to this world that so desperately needs it. God, I pray, God, that you would give us the courage, again, to live out our faith every moment. God, as we live to please you and not others. God, thank you for your word, for the truth, God, and the hope that it brings in our lives. As we go this week, Lord, guide our steps. Lord, help us to be closer to you every day. God, as we continue to move forward in our journey of faith, 
Thank you for transforming us, God. Guide us as we go this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.